Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, uncovering the secret of how a pervert became the boss of a crown entity. A government manager who planted a spy camera in a gym bathroom has lost name suppression and now has a conviction to his name. Here's Philip Barnes. Jim's changing room was promoted to chief executive of the Crown Entity International Accreditation New Zealand after his offending. In November 2017, the 65-year-old placed a USB spy camera in an Auckland gym's changing room. Police discovered it had nearly 40,000 images and 12 video files showing six victims partially dressed or naked. Although police searched his workplace and took away his computer, Barnes kept his job and early last year was promoted to chief executive. The man has made a last-ditch attempt to be discharged without conviction and keep his name secret. But the Supreme Court has declined to hear his appeal. The case is strikingly similar to one involving investigative journalist Veronica Schmidt. Veronica is RNZ's long-form editor. And we started this podcast three months ago, thinking then that all would be revealed after Barnes lost his bid in the Court of Appeal to keep his name secret. But it wasn't over because he went to the Supreme Court and we had to put the podcast on hold, not knowing if it would ever be aired. Well, today Veronica reveals how her investigation into Barnes started when she published her own personal experience of being filmed in a changing room. So let's hear about that first. I found out about it because of a quite personal, a very personal essay that I wrote actually. So in August of 2019, it must have been, I was in a Kmart um, changing cubicle and had been trying on bras and various other things. And um, I looked down and saw that there was a smartphone had been poked underneath um, the changing room cubicle from the cubicle next door and um, someone was filming me changing and I wrote an essay about it and we published that August of last year Um, so that's August 2020 and it was about what can happen after that victim blaming and going through the justice process which um, can be incredibly long and arduous and so I wrote it after he was convicted. That long and arduous process is mostly over for Veronica in her case but there are a couple more twists. It's mostly over for me. So um, he was sentenced to a few weeks community service, and I thought it was over then. But then he appealed both his conviction and his sentence to the High Court, or at least he applied to appeal, and um, he has the right to do that. So then there was a whole lot of waiting, and then a few days before the High Court hearing, um, he withdrew his appeal. Just like that? Just like that. Um, So I was super happy at that news because I was ready for another hearing. And then just after I found out that, like an hour later, I got an email saying that the story I'd written about the whole saga was up for an award at the Voyager Media Awards. So it was the sudden and really nice and very unexpected end to the whole thing. Yeah. So it is mostly over, but I shouldn't quite say it's over because he actually could potentially apply to appeal. I was in the office that day when you got the news that the man uh, withdrew his appeal mm. And do you mind me saying that it was emotional for you, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, because it had been the background of my life by then for about at least 18 months, I think. You know, I would get, um, you know, another update and I'd have to think about it all again or I'd have to go to court again or whatever. So I was just so happy to think that it was probably over. I read your piece and it was incredibly moving 
because you could really feel the trauma that you went through with Thank it. You. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, I, I, that's why I wrote it, because I wanted to... I mean, I suppose I... I had seen how long the justice system takes and and I thought I understood victim blaming and then when I was inside it, I realised um, that you can't quite understand the experience from you know a news story and so I wanted to, I hoped that people would be able to understand it when um, they read that piece and it was quite hard to do because, you know, being that open about some quite vulnerable moments and thoughts, I felt like I was letting people crawl inside my brain almost, you know, and really feel what it was like but I got a really overwhelming response and it was lovely but amongst that um, so after that story was published there was a part in there that um, caught someone's attention so just before I went to court for the trial of what happened to me I had read an article in the Herald and it said that there was a high level government manager who had stuck a camera in some gym changing rooms and filmed I think it was six people and he had been discharged without conviction and had permanent name suppression and when my case which was similar was about to go to court and it had taken me a year to get there I kind of my heart sank I just thought what was the point of all this if you know this guy might end up with a discharge without conviction and he can't even be named and I was just yeah about it and I wrote that just you know one sentence in this essay oh you referred to that yeah I referred to that in, in, in um, the essay that I wrote about my own experience and then after it was published someone came forward to give me a tip and tell me who that person was and so that's how I got onto this story. About Philip Barnes. That's right. Philip Barnes is his name, and we can finally say that. So the Herald had reported on it, but it's hard as other media um, to go and report on it because he had name suppression. And so obviously we would love to have a court reporter in every courtroom throughout the country to see who comes through it, but that's simply not possible. So we didn't know who this person was that the Herald was referring to, but now I'd had this tip and I did know. And I found out that it's Philip Barnes, who was the CEO of International Accreditation New Zealand. Now, that's a crown entity, and it gives accreditation to like labs and you know medical imaging providers and things. Once I found that out, I was like, whoa, how did this man, A, keep his job at IANS, which is what they call it, IANS. But also, he was promoted. He was promoted from general manager to CEO after he'd stuck this camera in the in the gym toilet. So And was found out. Yeah, he was arrested and he was charged and, and later promoted. And so once I knew his name, I could start digging into it. Okay, and at that point, when you first came across the case, or that person gave you that tip-off... Where was that case at? I mean, so he had been discharged without conviction and he had name suppression. That's right. However, the police were appealing it. So you knew that the police were appealing it? I did, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I knew the police were appealing it. And actually, you know, um, for me it wasn't so much about the ca- the case, although obviously I had great empathy for the victims. And actually I had to ask myself, you know, can I be impartial reporting on the story? Do I not do it? And I ran it through the usual editorial processes we have at RNZ and decided yes. But my real interest is in what happened at IANS. I wanted to know, um, you know, it's a crown entity, like how did he keep his job, get promoted, and who knew what and when and how did they deal with it? And so that's what I was really interested in investigating. So you knew his name, but how do you get that information? I mean, how difficult is it to start digging and and find out more about it. Well, once I had his name, I could go and, um, you know, request some court documents. 
and we knew that the police were appealing and RNZ, you know, I had a good look at it and RNZ decided actually this is something that we think um, the public has a right to know about and they have a right to know who this is, especially because he'd been at a Crown entity. So we, together with the Herald, who had been following the story, um, instructed a lawyer and our lawyer went along to the High Court where the police were appealing and supported the police in trying to get the permanent name suppression quashed and the police were also appealing his discharge without conviction so I started following the court process went to the high court, it later went to the court of appeal went there but again as I say I was really interested in what had happened at IANS so I went about trying to find people who had been at IANS when all of this happened and you know I found stuff that made me even more interested in how he managed to hang on at that Crown entity. So I spoke to the former CEO and he'd been CEO at the time when Philip Barnes was the general manager and had gone to a gym and stuck a camera under a sink with Velcro and filmed a couple naked and a woman mostly undressed and four other people. And in speaking to um, that former CEO, Llewellyn Richards is his name, Mm. I discovered that the police had actually turned up at IANS after Philip Barnes was caught. Someone spotted the camera. He was caught and the police turned up at IANS's office on a work day. Plain clothes. They were in plain clothes, Mm. that's right. And went into Philip Barnes's office. They had a search warrant. Went into his office, started going through his staff, walked off with his laptop and um, asked about his USB storage devices. Now, they were in plain clothes, but this is a very, very, um, you know, you know New Zealand. Um, someone spotted one of the cops and went, hey, that's a detective. I know him. And so soon there were rumours going around. Ians. Yeah, so colleagues were sort of saying, mm, something is up here. They were saying there's cops in Philip, our, our general manager's office, yes, right. going through his staff. But what was, I guess, the official story? What were they being told about this? Mm, Yeah, that's a good question because you can imagine what would happen in your workplace if you saw that. So the former CEO, Lou Richards, told me that he went and asked Philip Barnes, you know, why are the police interested in you? I've actually since seen court documents that say the police said what they were investigating. Camera in a a changing room. Um, But, yeah, Lou Richards talked to Philip Barnes and Philip Barnes said, oh, I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Time. And Lou Richards said he came away from the conversation thinking that um, the police were just ruling out suspects and poor old Philip Barnes had been caught up in the process. So at that point, Philip Barnes was just a colleague, someone that they liked who would come into work every day. Yeah, and I think that some of the people I've talked to have described him as a nice guy. You know, he's a father, he's had a, a long career in science and management. But people were gossiping, like, why were the police looking at him? And so Lou Richards told me they um, gathered Philip Barnes's direct reports and told them oh, he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time and he hasn't done anything. Of course, he had. And in fact, he went on to plead guilty um, to making, what is the charge? It is making an intimate visual recording. So he pleaded guilty, but IANS didn't do anything further. Did they know that he'd pleaded guilty? No, no, they didn't. None of them knew? No. And Philip Barnes didn't declare anything? Philip Barnes didn't tell them. However, some of the people that I've spoken to um, who were there at the time say it was obvious that something was going on with Philip Barnes so after that police visit they say he started behaving really differently he would disappear for hours at a time he lost weight one of them told me he was a shadow of his former self is what they said however he stayed on as general manager and then last year he was promoted to CEO
he was promoted to CEO because why? What happened to Lou Richards? Why? So he resigned and it was around, you know, when um, the COVID-19 pandemic was hitting New Zealand and they promoted Philip Barnes and, in fact, Philip Barnes then used that promotion to keep his name secret. How did he do that? So he went to court shortly after he'd stepped into the CEO position and, well, or rather he put an application to court saying, look, I've got this big job and IANS that accredits these labs is really important to the country's pandemic response because these labs are doing all the coronavirus tests and I can't possibly be named. It might harm the reputation of IANS and we couldn't do our work. And he got he got um, name suppression extended and then later a district court judge gave him permanent name suppression and discharged him without conviction. She said that he had, um, I think he'd done about 190 hours community service, he'd seen a therapist, which I discovered was just down the road from Irons and, you know, I can't help thinking maybe that's the place that he disappeared to for hours. Who knows, I can't, you know, I can't mm. be sure of that. And so off he went. And this this went on, actually not for months, but really for years after the police first turned up. Mm. You've talked to his colleagues and they've said, oh, you know, he he was looking dishevelled and he did seem to change a lot. But was it not alarming enough to people to think they should take it further? That's a really good question. The former CEO says he was left with the impression there was no, that Philip Barnes had no case to answer and that the police who took took off with his computer eventually returned the computer and they just thought, oh, well, that's over. I've also spoken, or rather put questions to, um, they weren't keen to talk to the Accreditation Council. Now, that's kind of like a board. It governs IANS. And they say, you know, we did this investigation, which I think was the CEO asking Philip Barnes if he'd, you know, what was going on, and that he denied he'd done anything. And that was the end of it. Um, and so they don't seem to think there was anything. And remember, years passed, years passed, and they probably heard nothing more about it. However, as I say, some people who were there at the time say it was obvious there was something going on with them. But they feel that they couldn't raise it yeah. any further. Yeah. Was You were finding out all of this stuff and talking to these people. Was it difficult to get hold of these people? Track <laughs> yes. these people down? It wasn't dif- as, as difficult to get hold of them. It was difficult to get them to talk, though, which is, you know, as you well know, is quite often um, the challenge there. And, you know, the, certainly there were people who hung up on me or people who told me they couldn't talk, and that's, you know, understandable. But I did did get to the bottom of what went on. And also, you know, the Official Information Act came in very handy. Okay, mm. the Official Information Act. How did you use that or what, what did you do there? Um, so I requested documents from both the Accreditation Council, again, that's the governing body of IANS, from IANS itself um, and from MB, the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment, because they um, they get reports from IANS and um, had a look at what was going on there. Um, emails flying back and forth that kind of thing. There were some interesting emails from the Accreditation Council to Philip Barnes when that first Herald story came out saying that, you know, an unnamed high-level government um, manager had been um, sentenced for sticking a camera. So th- at mm, that mm, point mm. they put two and two together. That's that's exactly right. So a Herald story came out saying that this had happened, not naming anyone, but they called him a high-level government manager. And at that point, Paul Connell, who was the chair of the Accreditation Council, alarm bells went off for um, him. And I've seen the emails. He says to Philip Barnes, we need to talk about this article. And Philip Barnes came, comes back and says something like, I can't see that that has 
anything to do with me or the council. So he neither confirms nor denies it. And so hangs on in there as he's hung on in there for years, collecting $250,000 salary as CEO. And then shortly after that, that's when the police go, we're going to appeal. And then um, he resigns. Okay. But he hung on for, I think it was about two and a half years or longer after he'd committed those crimes, he stayed and was, at that Crown entity. And was promoted. And was promoted. To, to, that's to right. be the boss over that period. Mm. And, and of course, you're digging and trying to get to the bottom of the story. That, that didn't happen quickly. No. And so I think... Uh, I've been working on the story, or at least it's been going on in the background for me for about seven months. And there's always the thought with a story like this, I may never be able to publish or report any of this. Because he had name suppression. He had name suppression. And, um, you know, as I say, we had a lawyer that went to the High Court along with the police to appeal that um, name suppression. The High Court overturned the name suppression. Said yes, you can name him, but Philip Barnes appealed again. So he's he had a he's got a lawyer called Ron Mansfield, who's a really well known high pro, high profile um, criminal lawyer, and he said let's go to the Court of Appeal, which is where it went. And the Court of Appeal upheld the High Court ruling that he should be convicted and he should be named. Can you talk about that decision to overturn the name suppression? Did the judges give any reason for why? Yeah, they did. So the High Court judge found that the District Court judge, who had first said, yes, you can forever go um, unidentified and you've been discharged without a conviction, had actually looked at the wrong summary of facts. So she thought that... Philip Barnes had gone into that gym changing room once and stuck a camera under the sink. In fact, he'd gone four times on four separate days and done this. He had Velcro stuck under two sinks in two separate changing rooms to attach his camera. And so, you know, there were many arguments in court about that showing that he had intent and that it was premeditated. And then in in terms of the name suppression, um, the High Court said, look, it's not up to the court to protect Irons' reputation. And they also thought that what Philip Barnes had done, any consequences, so he he was arguing um, not only that it would affect Irons' reputation and his career, but that he might lose his house if he lost his job and that it would cause distress for his family and that his marriage would be in peril. And the High Court said, look, that's because of what you've done. It's not because you'll be con- because we're convicting you or naming you. And so they quashed it. And the Court of Appeal... Agreed. And that's when we thought it's all over. We can publish Barnes's details and get the podcast out. But no. The day before we were to identify Barnes, he sought leave to appeal to the Supreme Court. And that was quite unexpected. The Supreme Court, that's the top of the top. That's the end of the line. He applied on the basis that he had suffered a substantial miscarriage of justice and that there were aspects of his case that were of public importance. So that was back in March. Then it wasn't until Monday of this week that the Supreme Court released its judgment and that basically said, no, we're not hearing the appeal. And it's the end of the road for you, Mr Barnes. So the court gave him a further 24 hours name suppression so he could presumably go and tell the people that he wanted to tell himself before his name became public. And then at 2pm on Tuesday, we could finally identify him and tell the full story. What now for him? 
He hasn't been sentenced, so while he was still appealing his um, conviction, he hoped to be discharged without conviction, as well as keep the name suppression, but now he has been convicted of making an intimate visual recording. That's the charge that he pleaded guilty to, actually. So he can now be sentenced, and I imagine that will go back to the district court. While you were digging into this, you also did a little bit of investigating into Philip Barnes's background, which is pretty interesting. It is interesting. You know, I think f- unless you knew this story, you would think he... He was a very he was a very successful man. So he is originally from England, and he moved to New Zealand, and he had a job at IANS, and then um, went to a district health board. Um, and so he held high management positions, and he had responsibility for lots of money and lots of staff, and had a, an unblemished record. And then apparently the trigger for this kind of offending was he had erectile dysfunction and that pushed him into a porn addiction. He'd already struggled with porn but the erectile dysfunction apparently heightened that. He also had issues with alcohol and so that was kind of the backdrop. That's what was going on when he committed this crime. Earlier on you talked about the victim blaming which is what you experienced. What, what is that like? Can you explain what exactly mm. that is? Well I can tell you about what happened in my case which is that after I you know, looked down and saw that this camera was filming me getting undressed. I screamed and the staff at that Kmart store refused to call the police for me, even though I asked. They told me it was a civil matter and that I should deal with it myself with this guy who was much bigger than me, standing there denying he had done anything. And they... The store also refused to trespass him once police did turn up and saying, oh, well, we don't know that anything happened. So I was kind of doubted from the get-go, and that really gave me an insight into what people go through. And you read these kind of stories all the time, that that people blow the whistle and, and then pay the price. And I was really aware, too, that, you know, I'm a Pākehā middle-aged mum, you know, and I was still kind of, like, doubted, and is she making this up? And I thought, you know, what are, what are people in a less privileged position, what's the treatment that they receive? Mm. Yeah, and that's Mm. partly why I wanted to write my own story. How does it feel? Well, actually, you haven't quite got closure in both these cases. I mean, I suppose in the case of Barnes, there is closure. But do you feel like your own case is nearly there? Yeah, I do. And I mean, with Barnes professionally, it is sort of over for me in that we've been able to report it. I did think, oh, we've, you know, done all this work and and none of it, it may be that none of it sees the light of day. Um, but and I'm really pleased because RNZ's fought this name suppression all the way to the Supreme Court. And we did that because the media believes it's a public's right to know um, what goes on, A, in court, but also another of our roles is to hold public figures um, accountable. And he was a senior manager in a Crown entity. So it was really important to me that that we could tell the story. And as a member of the media, it's really important too that these things come out in public. But in terms of my own case, I've moved on now since the legal process is probably finished. um, And I'm not really having to do anything on that at the moment and hopefully will not have to do anything in future. And because I've written about it, and, you know, I think as a storyteller telling my story kind of helped me. It was it was over for me. Although I should say that I still, every time I go into a public 
bathroom or a public changing room, I check for cameras. And wow. I probably always will do. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Alexia Russell produced today's episode. Rangi Poik engineered it. And thanks to Veronica Schmidt. Kakite anō. Kakite anō.